Is it sensory or is it behavior? This is the myth of all myths we discussed in the last episode and where the biggest divide occurs in our field. Why a person does what they do and why they behave in ways they behave. Albeit trepidly, we are going to go there. Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives yet with the common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Welcome to episode three, Sensory versus Behaviour Beginnings, Addressing Failure to Thrive in Invents. Hello OTs, ABAs, OTAs, RBTs, students, therapists, educators, skeptics, yet potential collaborators. Welcome to our third episode, which is part of a series of podcasts to address the distinction that is often made in the OT world of, is it sensory or is it behavior? This is the myth of all myths we discussed in the last episode and where the biggest divide occurs in our field. It's large, it's complex, and we're going to take it slowly. We will cover aspects of this issue in a number of episodes, as well as later having input from both behavior analysts and OTs on the subject of understanding why a person does what they do and why they behave in ways they behave. Albeit trepidly, we are going to go there. (laughs) Are you ready, Mandy? I'm ready. Okay, but before we do, I do have a question for you. Uh, so the other day I was chatting with a friend of mine, you know, I was blabbing on about the podcast and how I was excited about doing this with, you know, my co-host in Australia. So I think I talked her ear off about 20 minutes and then, you know, what she came up with, she's like, do you ever wonder if in Australia kangaroos are just hanging around the backyard like squirrels are in the US? <laughs> and I was like, uh... No, I haven't. But now that I think about it, yes, that is a good question. So I thought I would just ask you. Yeah, I mean, talking about myths, I guess this is one of the greatest myths that, uh, yeah, Americans have about Australians or Australia. And that is that we have kangaroos just hopping down the street. But I think we've probably done ourselves an injustice in that there's lots of movies and, you know, cartoons and jokes about that. But um, yeah, I think it's honestly something that people think. Possums? We have lots of like, yeah, you can hear them in your roof. You can see them outside. And in parts of Australia, not far from where I live in Perth, there are lots of places you can see kangaroos. You'll see them on golf courses and in farms. And they're really dangerous because they often come out to feed at like five o'clock at night, just as it's getting dark and like jump out in front of your car when you're driving in the country. But in the city, other than in the zoo, you won't see any kangaroos, sorry to tell you that. There is, however, an island just about an hour off the coast from where I live, and there is a form of a little kangaroo marsupial called a quokka, and there's lots of them there, and lots of Americans that come here love to go to Rottnest. Oh, well, thank you for answering that very pressing question. I do think um, our audience was probably pondering that, but let's dive in uh, and get to our Our hot topic, very hot topic. Let's talk about the S word. Oh, dare we go there. So (laughs) sensory. Where does sensory fit in? Where does behavior begin? What constitutes behavior? Is it really a chicken or egg scenario? Or does behavior encompass sensory? How do these aspects of sensory and behavior impact early survival skills? In this episode, we will address the most basic behaviors at birth. 
essentially feeding is what we're going to talk about. We will analyze the sensory and behavioral components at the very basic survival level, all the way up to when awareness begins. The takeaway from this episode will be a really essential guide where we apply these sensory and behavioral strategies to address early feeding in babies with failure to thrive diagnosis, which will also include an applicable glossary of terms for OTs and ABAs. I'm really excited about this takeaway because I think it'll be really useful for therapists on both sides. So before we get any further, I do want to give a nice shout out to an OT by the name of Margot B. Home. She is actually an OT professor at University of Pittsburgh, and she wrote an article in 2000 called Our Mandate for the New Millennium. In this article, she examined the strength of the evidence associated with OT interventions, dilemmas around limited evidence, and proposed a framework to advance the competency of evidence-based practice. I really, really like this article. It so spoke to me, and I would urge every OT to read this article as it really places the responsibility on us, each and every individual OT, to take the initiative to really show the world how valuable our service is and that what we do really does work. That's where we are in the OT state of affairs right now, and I think this article really addresses it. All right, so now that I've got the shout out out of the way, um, Mandy, where should we start? Well, let's start at the very beginning, almost at the very beginning, at birth. Uh, One of the earliest behaviours that babies display is suckling. And Aditi, you have a story to share with us. Many of us can relate to this, a story of early feeding challenges with one of your children. Can you share? Oh, goodness. You know, starting this, it it takes me back to a very stressful time in my life. Tristan is my second born, and he was born full term, six pounds. Um, Actually, my other children were nine pounds. So I was like, "Uh, yeah, where's the rest of this child? (laughs) He was underweight in my mind. And, you know, very healthy, no challenges at birth. But he just didn't feed well. He latched on, was breastfeeding, fine. We consulted a lactation specialist. Everything looked good, wasn't tongue-tied. Yet his quantity or intake was just lower. And we found this out initially because, you know, when you go back for baby checkups, you know, they measure the weight. And his weight was just not increasing at the acceleration level of typical babies. So I was breastfeeding, so there's no way for me to know how much he was taking in, but I could tell that he would refuse feeding very shortly after starting. And I just thought it was a bit odd. So when we realized that he wasn't gaining weight, it was very harrowing for me. I can't tell you how stressful it was because as a mom, your intuition is to feed your baby. And that's just what we're born to do. That's just nature. And I couldn't do that one thing, which was feed my baby. And of course, knowing what I know about child development, I was like thinking about the implications of, you know, how this would impact him further down the road. And so it was a really hard time. But what I did, um, being an OT, obviously, I made sure that I ruled out all medical facets to this problem. So I made sure that, you know, I talked to the lactation consultants, I talked to the pediatrician about him being tongue-tied. That was not an issue. Then we went through a series of tests of upper GI 
to determine if there's anything that was inhibiting his ability to intake food. That was not an issue. We also did a gastric emptying to see, you know, was it not emptying fast enough? And that's why he wasn't taking in food. Well, none of those tests were conclusive to there being a problem. The other aspect was Tristan's a very happy baby. I mean, every doctor I took him to, they would they would just look at me and go, why are you worried? He's happy. Yeah, he's not eating much, but he's growing. He's not on the growth charts, but it's okay. I wouldn't worry about it because there are no medical reasons he's not eating. So at this point, my OT brain started going, okay, I have ruled out all medical issues. So what's next? Then I was like, there's got to be a sensory facet to this. This is when I started thinking about interoception. Interoception is the perception of sensations from inside the body, and it includes a perception of physical sensations related to internal organs, like your heartbeat, respiration, and satiety. Satiety, I'm not sure how you say that, but anyway. So my hypothesis was that Tristan's interoception system may not be registering that he was hungry or satiation. Maybe he just was not registering that correctly. I mean, there's no way for me to prove that. Uh, the only way I could hypothesize that was in his behavior. He just would eat like... So, Mandy, do you know how much a typical baby drinks in a day? I don't. I breastfed both of my babies and I have no idea what a typical baby would drink. So, And the only reason I know is because I was so in tune to this. Yeah. About 30 to 35 ounces a day. Right. Tristan was drinking 10 to 12 ounces a day. Right. And he would have one good feeding a day. It would be like four to six ounces and I'd be delighted. But then the rest would be one ounce, two ounce, one ounce, two ounce. So you can see why I was just beside myself going, he's not getting the nutrition he needs. Yeah. And this is where I started going, you know what? It seems like he gets hungry and then he's full really fast and it doesn't match the amount of intake that he should be taking in. So that's kind of where I stopped. I did seek out speech therapy services to make sure there were no oral motor issues that could hinder things. I did seek out OT services too. But this is where I stopped. So when we first, you and I first started talking about sensory and behavior in early beginnings, it reminded me of this scenario because I was stuck. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do. So I knew that it was a sensory responsive issue, right? His brain was signaling that he was full and he would stop feeding. So in my mind, this was completely sensory and it was all around sensory responses. Well, Aditi, when we first decided to venture into the shaky ground of talking about sensory issues or sensory responses, as you just put it, I have to admit, I was worried that we would reach a position of no return, that perhaps we would push this collaboration to its limits, right? Uh, it has challenged me as a behavior analyst to be open-minded and to listen and to learn as I undertook to do when we commenced this collaboration and as we held out to all the ABAs and OTs out there to listen and to learn. 
My only experience really with OT up until recently was in the field of autism and um, in particular in the use of sensory integration. And when I began consulting with you on things such as handwriting and hand strength, building core strength, issues impacting a child's ability to sit in a chair and form letters, I realized there were many component skills that I had overlooked. And the OT went way beyond attributing all behavior to some invisible, unmeasurable system within the body or or senses. I had mistakenly developed the view that OTs attributed everything to sensory challenge and attributed anything a child with autism did to a, a sensory system. This is such a challenge to a behavior analyst because our science looks at behavior, whether it's within or outside the skin, but ultimately how a human being responds to their environment. And we do that through careful observation and data. At Fit Learning, we call ourselves scientist practitioners because we collect a lot of baseline data before we intervene. We develop and define specific interventions and we make discoveries through data collection and analysis. So yeah, we assume nothing. When it comes to sensory interventions that I've observed previously, at least, there appears to be a lot of assumptions, not supported by data, but by some hypothesis, because much of these sensory type issues cannot be measured. So the issue of discussing sensory issues in this podcast seemed like an enormous challenge that, you know, at some point we might get unstuck, but we undertook to find a way to collaborate and find common ground and to share each other's perspective. So here we go, Aditi, we are going where many others have feared to go before, but I'm up for it. Are you? Oh, goodness, goodness. I am so trepid, if not more trepid than you are in this venture. I'm fearful that just mentioning the the controversy around the S word will alienate many of my colleagues because it's become such a highly incendiary topic and it really doesn't need to be, but it has. But I also know that this is the elephant painted black and blue with bells on in the room and will not go away. That is highlighted as the OT mandate for this millennium in the article I um, give a shout out for by Margot Hold. She stated it in her publication that we as OTs cannot go on the record to state that we are committed to being evidence-based, but then look the other way when someone inquires about our intervention and asks how we know it works. So while we may feel ill-prepared to go there, We have to. We don't have a choice. This is a remarkable blemish in our field, and we need to be seeking out solutions to meet the challenge. So if there's a good point of view here, it's that most OTs are very open to this conversation, Mandy. We're not really the confrontational sort. We're sort of the middle child, if you will, very agreeable, and we just want everyone to get along. So actually, in the therapy world, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but There's an amusing caricature of how you can differentiate between OTs, PTs, and speech therapists. So PTs are the ones in trainers, Mm -hmm. golf shirts, and khakis. Mm -hmm. OTs are the ones wearing um, hoop earrings with Birkenstocks. Right. And then speech therapists are the ones wearing heels and lipstick. So we generally have this reputation of being very open to different points of views. And I can say with almost 100, I don't know, maybe 99.9% certainty that if anyone was to approach an OT and say, hey, look, I just want to help you objectify your interventions and data collection methods. And I can show you how to do that. And especially if they abstain from disparaging our values and beliefs, 
we would welcome that help and assistance and even give you credit in return. But that conversation has to start with mutual respect and understanding. And that is why when you and I decided to do this, we agreed on going back to the very basic, the very beginning, so that we leave no room for misunderstandings to aggregate at all. So one aspect I've realized over a year or so is that there is this chatter amongst OTs, in the US at least, that there's a need to differentiate between sensory and behavior. There are countless articles, CEU courses aimed just to do that. And the topic is always sensory versus behavior, Mm -hmm. like that chicken and egg scenario. And while I know OTs know that at some level, behavior encompasses a lot more than the concept of being naughty or controlling, when we discuss sensory and behavior in that context, there's this tendency to sort of categorize and simplify behavior as a good or bad choice based on control and contrastingly different than in a sensory scenario where it may be more unlearned behavior. So there may be some semantics involved here because I think OTs have a very noble goal. We're trying to figure out how can we create this distinction so we don't inadvertently feed that cycle of reinforcing bad behavior, in quotes. But perhaps we need to go back a little and revisit what that truly constitutes. Mandy, what is behavior and what does it encompass? Okay, I think that's the best place to start. It's um, it, as behavioralists, it's in our title, uh, and we're, we are all about obviously behavior. And I have discussed this in an earlier episode, but let's go back to Og Lindsley, who was a student at BF Skinner's, and he developed this concept of the dead person's test to assist the layperson to understand behavior from a behavioralist perspective. He was a proponent of the use of plain English to understand or explain complex concepts uh, because in our science of behavior analysis, we tend to use very precise and technical definitions that sometimes distance people from our science. So he had the noble cause of using plain English. Not only that we're the only ones to do that, but it's been helpful. I believe Og's work has been a massive reason as to why I've been able to yeah, be successful in what I do. And it goes a little like this. If a dead person can do it, it's not behavior. If a dead person can't do it, it is behavior. Pretty simple test. In other words, things like laying still, falling downstairs, being non-compliant, sitting in a chair, they are not behavior because a dead person can do them. So then does volition or choice not come into play here? Because I can choose to lay still. Mm -hmm. I can choose to fall down the stairs or I can choose not to follow directions that comply. So is that not considered behavior? You know, like my thinking and my cognitive process, is that not behavioral? Absolutely. And this is a common misunderstanding for people outside of our field that we don't take into account things that you can't see like emotion or speaking to yourself, but things like making a choice or talking to yourself, listening to yourself speak either vocally or subvocally, even watching someone else do something, learning a rule, 
All of those things are things a dead person cannot do and therefore they are behaviour from a behaviour analyst perspective. Ultimately, a behaviour analyst attributes what a human does to genetics, the person's history and their current environment, uh, with some behaviours being those a human being is born with and everything else being acquired through a process of learning and what we call operant learning. This occurs from a person interacting with their environment and, of course, a human being starts to interact with their environment from the very first time they're conceived. But let's just start at birth. <laughs> so from birth, we can observe behaviours that need you know, no interaction with the environment to be able to do them or, or learn them, such as breathing and suckling, uh, response to touch, response to sound, light, what you might call um, you know, responding to the senses, survival mechanisms or reflexes. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying that. No, that makes sense. So I think we're in agreement so far that yeah. um, right out of the womb, the infant would possess some sort of internal genetic material, which I would call like sensory characteristics too, which would influence the quality of their interactions. Yeah. I mean, I think we're using different terminologies, but we are saying the same things. You know, there are uh, the body sensory systems, both within the skin or internal and external, all of which a dead person can't do, and therefore we consider to be behaviour. Um, the commonly referred to external systems being taste and touch, sight, sound, smell, and then proprioceptive vestibular, and more recently, as you spoke of earlier, this sense of interoception or the ability to sense systems of things like hunger, heat, and thirst. Some scientists say that even this is a significant simplification of the system of senses. I saw some scientists publish that he has identified 33 different senses in systems in the body and we continue to discover uh, through research the complexity of our body to sense responses to environmental change. Oh, goodness, yeah, that is complex. But I do want to hold on a second and, and revisit this because I think this is a very key point here. Mm -hmm. So since receiving and reacting to sensory responses, whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic, a dead man cannot do, therefore, all sensory responses would actually be considered a behavior. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I just wanted to clarify that because... That's something that OTs need to hold on to and we need to circle back to. And I, I really want to reframe the whole sensory versus behavior and change it to more of a distinction between it's about unlearned versus learned behavior or perhaps in ABA terms, respondent versus operant behavior. Yeah, so in another episode, we are going to examine in a lot greater detail these topics of behaviors what a baby does not need any prior learning to engage in, and then how a baby learns the process by which behavior is acquired or lost from a behavior analyst perspective, what strengthens or weakens those behaviors. So, you know, these early behaviors seem like a very good place to start. In this particular episode, we are looking at the issues of feeding because it's the earliest behavior that um, unlearned behavior that a, a baby commences its life with. This is a, obviously a survival mechanism. 
And if you observe a baby in utero, the baby is already suckling and practicing sucking their thumbs so that at birth it has this rooting reflex and, you know, like touching a baby's cheek, you'll know the Sadidi, will automatically cause a baby to turn to that touch. Um, this is an automatic, unlearned behavior. Turning their head in an arc to seek out a nipple, either a bottle or a breast. But with practice, lots of babies, but not all babies, will improve their ability to locate and attach to the nipple, create suction, and improve their feeding action. So coordinating sucking and the action of the tongue, sucking, breathing, and swallowing is a really complicated process. I know this because my daughter had a complete fusion of her tongue to the uh, floor of her mouth. So I had to learn a lot about that process. And for any of us, you know, who've had those kind of feeding difficulties, we're only too aware how some babies do not learn as well as others for a variety of reasons. So while babies are born with this reading reflex, they still have to interact with their environment and practice to improve their ability to take the correct amount of fluid without, you know, choking, be able to swallow and breathe at the same time. So, so far, Aditi, are we in agreement to this point? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, we don't refute that those early experiences are so important for survival and overall skill development. Uh, For Tristan, you know, we did have that assess, the whole suck, swallow, breathe concept. And he had that down. But we also in OT would infer or hypothesize that the quality of these experiences, once again, can be marred by inaccurate sensory responses. So going back to Tristan's case, you know, he was not feeding well, and there were several medical hypotheses that were ruled out one by one. And now, of course, this was like 14 years ago. It was a long time ago. And I had no inclination about behavior, although I watched him like a hawk (laughs) with his behavior around feeding because I was so desperate to feed him. And I also remember... I had a friend who had an older child. Uh, I think he was about 18 months. She was 18 months old. And they were in, they were from England and they were force feeding their baby. I mean, it was a big to do. And I just thought, gosh, that's so traumatic. And, And I knew enough about behavior and early experiences that I wasn't going to go there. But I have be, I will be honest that I did think about it because I was so desperate. But yeah, I never resorted to force feeding methods. And so once all the medical aspects were ruled out, what did you do next? I was actually quite a nut with journaling. I journaled his feedings. And I, as I mentioned before, I realized that he'd have one good feeding and a good would be like four to six ounces. And then, you know, it'd be one to two to three ounces for the rest of the day. So I tried to see if I could find a pattern, but I couldn't. It seemed very random. And then I came to the conclusion that there was some sensory element and there was no way for me to change that. But I needed to try something a sensory diet of some sort or something to help his system regulate and perhaps take more intake in. So I also took him to a speech therapist, as I mentioned. And, you know, after doing all these therapies, OT, I didn't provide OT. I had someone outside because I was too close to it. And um, we did some sensory strategies. We did oral motor 
But I saw no results in three months other than making myself insane. I was so fixated on the quantity of intake. And I just, I knew that was not making me a good mum. But yeah, I kept trying these sensory diets and oral motor plans for feeding. Yeah. And like, what did they look like and, and what were they designed to do? So, you know, my hypothesis was that he was... A, not getting that hungerful cycle, it was not being recognized by his brain. And I also hypothesized that possibly he was dysregulated, like something in the environment was not conducive to his feeding. So I started thinking, well, I could try doing uh, music to sort of create a very warm and inviting environment for feeding. I could also maybe do some massage for proprioceptive input, swaddle him really tight when I'm feeding him, try white noise. These are just some sensory strategies that I thought about. And, you know, I did it for about a week. And yeah, I'm sure I didn't do it long enough that I know that's one of the issues. But I think he was nine months old at that point, And I just gave up, Mandy. Yeah. I was just defeated. I was like, nothing's working. He eats what he eats. The doctor says he's fine. He's not on the growth charts. He's still not on the growth charts, but he's growing. He's learning. And I, at nine months, I could see the developmental milestones starting. So I wasn't as concerned in that area either. So I gave up. I put him in daycare and I told the daycare staff, do not tell me how much he intakes don't want to hear it, don't want to know Tristan is who he is. And I gave up. Yeah. I do remember, you know, when we started talking about this, you and I were pondering feeding and the behavioral and sensory aspects. And I do remember you um, sharing an article with me, which I was reading it. And I was like, gosh, if someone had given me these strategies when I was struggling with Tristan, it would have been priceless because it was a behavioral intervention for feeding for children with failure to thrive, which is what Tristan was diagnosed with. But in this study, I know that the infants were very severe. They were on that brink of life and death sort of situation. I think it was music they used to impact feeding, right, Mandy? What were the details? Yeah, it was a multi-element design. It was, I guess, I just want to talk a little bit there Aditi, about this hypothesis you had developed that, you know, there was something because you hadn't observed anything in the environment that was or could account for anything in Tristan's medical makeup that accounted that, um, you know, you assumed there was something sensory occurring. And I think, you know, that's where um, behavior analysts kind of get stuck. And that is if you can't observe it and you kind of measure it, what can you do? Well, you can develop a hypothesis and then test that hypothesis. And this study in particular was by Larson, Allion and Barrett, and we will put the uh, reference in the show notes. It was a behavioral feeding program. It was developed for well, three infants were in the study. They were diagnosed with failure to thrive, organic failure to thrive, hospitalized for chronic feeding disorders. Prior to hospitalization, each of these infants um, had engaged in programs to try and restore normal eating, uh, including 
positioning of them when they were feeding, drug treatments, formula adjustments, but no improvements were made. Uh, one parent had tried force feeding because the uh, the situation was, you know, life-threatening. Medical tests had ruled out uh, reflux, uh, reflux as a possible cause. Nasogastric tube fittings were used in two of the three infants when their weight loss reached life-threatening levels and initially nursing staff uh, were used to implement this behavioural feeding program with parents given the option to participate. The intervention consisted of two phases. First of all, the use of music for a 10-minute interval to mask the start of feeding time. That is like a change of stimulus as a setting event to mask that feeding was beginning to occur. This was referred to as fun time. And the second element was feeding time. So the fun time would begin, the music would commence, the mother would in, or nurse would engage in pleasant uh, social interaction and touch with the baby. The second element then was feeding time. And if the infant refused food or emitted a gag or vomit reflex, a rest period was invoked, the music was turned off, and the baby was placed in its crib for three minutes. So the intervention consisted of what we would say as behavioralists differentially reinforcing adaptive eating behavior with attention and music while eliminating food refusal um, through this timeout procedure of putting the baby in its crib for three minutes. It consisted um, of so reinforcing that adaptive behaviour with attention to music and eliminating food refusal through the use of this procedure. Prior studies had used aversives to reduce vomiting or food refusal or rumination as we might call it, but didn't concentrate on building adaptive eating repertoires. So in this study, the, the real um, improvement in the study was this use of while reducing these behaviours we wanted to eliminate, wanted to eliminate also promoting um, adaptive eating repertoires. In all three subjects in this study, they demonstrated rapid improvement. Uh, in one case, within three days of increased rates of food acceptance, reduced vomiting and gagging, but also significant behavioural improvements that were, were measured and explained in the study during feeding time. So there was reduced kicking in one subject, reduced screaming, and also observations of the children or babies being more responsive to physical contact. So it was, you know, quite a, a, a transformative study in all three subjects and they all went on to develop very good behavioural adaptive eating. Oh, my gosh. That, I mean, it was amazing when I read it. I was like, gosh, to get such transformational results, that would have changed everything for me and my son Tristan all those years ago. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, do you think the intervention could have been just been the introduction of music without that rest period? Or was that rest period really important? That was a masking element to, if you like, change the stimulus because what would have been underlying these studies is the assumption that not that something necessarily sensory was going on, but that there had been something about the commencement of feeding or the interaction between the mother and the baby that had become aversive to the baby. And by introducing and masking the beginning of feeding, that it changed the um, stimulus around the commencement of you know providing food to the baby. But the authors did caution because they later removed music 
and were able to have the babies develop successful eating repertoires with the, in the absence of music. But they cautioned that the use of music alone was not recommended and that the adaptive eating was consequated by food and social attention primarily and that while music was to mask the beginning of the feeding cycle that it wasn't the primary reinforcer if you like to consequate appropriate eating so their recommendation was that it wasn't music on its own that caused the behavioral improvements so was the music more of an environmental yeah addition yeah okay so because we would do that in ot right we might add white noise we might um, add soothing music uh depending on the baby's reaction and so yeah I, i i can see how that would play there but the other thing that is interesting to me when i was reading the article is you know the whole rest period it just seems so counterintuitive to parenting I know because I did the opposite of what this article states when Tristan would, you know, feed. And obviously it's a different scenario because this is a case study with very severe and perilous situation. But in Tristan's case, when he stopped feeding, I would engage with him more and I would almost plead with him. I'd be like, oh, why aren't you eating? Just take a little bit more. And I'd hug him and cuddle him and I'd tell him I love him and I just want you to eat. Like I would talk to him in in my mind. I don't know why I thought that would make a difference. Of course it didn't. But, mm. you know, I, I think it is hard um, for us OTs too. It would be hard to present this to a parent because it just seems so counterintuitive to parenting. Yeah, I mean, this is what behavior analysis is founded on. And while antecedent interventions or something that happens before the behavior can occasion behavior, it is what happens after behavior in our science that determines whether you get that behavior again. And outside of this specific intervention, it probably makes more sense. A child is screaming or doing something, you know, um, what you would put in inverted commas as bad behavior. You don't want to consecrate that with great stuff, right? And this is very similar. So a baby is engaging in refusing to take food or gagging you know, the response here is, well, this is something we don't want to see more of. We do not want to accelerate or increase this behavior. We're going to remove what we think is strengthening this behavior of attention and warmth. And it's not a mean, nasty intervention in. We're not yelling at the baby. The baby is placed in a position where they're not provided with attention. Only for three minutes, the short interval of time in which such time they re-engage and promote feeding and provide that positive attention again. So really, this is, you know, what a behavior is calls differential reinforcement. We promote and strengthen behavior that we want to see again, and we try to weaken what's occurring um, or reinforcing behavior that we want to reduce. And of course, we are talking here about, you know, life-threatening behavior. And often in our fields of DD, we're dealing with extreme and challenging behavior. And, you know, yeah, part of the education is what um, at least my mentor, Dr. Kimberly Behrens, gives me, which I love to share with parents, and that is light switch on, light switch off. You know, when when a, a child is doing what you want to see more of, shine the light on them, you know, be your best self with them, provide eye contact and physical contact and attention 
And you know, when they're doing stuff you really don't want to see again, turn the light switch off and, you know, take away those things that probably are strengthening and reinforcing the behavior. And yeah, um, mostly as parents, we want to do the opposite because we just want it to stop. <laughs> and in the moment, you know, most of the time in the moment it works, right? You're like, you know, um, please, please stop that. I will take you for an ice cream, you know, and in the, ba- in the moment, but if you are strengthening that behavior, you are likely to see it again. And so, yeah, so yeah, it might see a little counterintuitive, but that's all part of the process of, you know, understanding what is strengthening and, and causing this behavior to occur. I do want to point something out here because I feel like we've come full circle, right? I think the issue here again is that OTs think of behavior as being something uh, with somewhat of a negative connotation yeah. because if the child or baby or whatever is displaying negative behaviors in our mind that might be tantruming, hitting, biting, whatever, we wouldn't think twice about taking away attention when we that's displayed. But in this situation, because behavior is actually the baby not feeding, we don't think about applying that to this situation. Yeah. Does that make sense, Mandy? Yeah, it does. And I guess that's, um, you know, what we're getting to here is that basically anything a baby does is behavior. And the process of defining what it is, defining the behavior that you're trying to reduce, defining the behavior that you're trying to put as a replacement behavior in that is a really important part of our science that might seem, what is the word that you've described to me before, a little linear. (laughs) But, you know, from our perspective, you can't increase or reduce something that you haven't defined and and made, you know, really um, clear to intervene on. So, So, yeah, I think you know, what comes out of this is saying that the discrimination between sensory and behavior is something that it doesn't need to be there. From our perspective, senses are behavior, responding to the environment is behavior, um, talking to yourself is behavior, what occurs within the body, pumping blood, you know, messages sent to the brain, all of those things from behavior analysis is behavior. And yeah, it's been really enlightening to me that that common usage of bad behavior is something that behavioralists need to be really aware of when they're dealing with professionals outside of their field because we use terms that are very specific and defined, but they also often have a common meaning as well, such as, you know, another term that behavioralists will use is punishment, which often has a really negative connotation, punishment being like hitting or, you know, yelling or or doing something. Whereas from our perspective, punishment is something that just reduces a behavior. This is one of those common terms that is used by an OT that I think behavioralists need to be very aware of and make sure that we're clear that you know, from our perspective, we don't ignore senses. We do look at things within the skin. We do take all of that into account. It's just that some of it is really hard to measure and we care deeply about measurement and looking at response to intervention, etc. So, yeah. Well, I think we're going to talk a lot about that in our next episode. We're really going to, uh, I think our next uh, sensory versus behavior series talks about, you know, do you see what I see? 
uh, where we discuss the key components of sensory and behavior and apply it to early learning in children. I think we're going to unravel all that. But I do want to chat a little bit more here about the key takeaway. It's really about coming up with a sensory behavioral approach to develop a hypothesis, right? So in this case with the baby, uh, an infant who is in failure to thrive, As an OT, I may hypothesize that the baby is not getting enough proprioceptive input, for example, and I might develop a sensory diet or intervention of providing massage before feedings because I want to increase the behavior of feedings, right? That's the behavior I want to increase. And then I would take baseline data on the quantity of intake for I don't know, three, four days before implementing that intervention and then take it after the intervention for a few days so I can show that it's actually working. This sort of sensory behavioral model will enable me as an OT to really describe the intervention that I took on so that it could be replicated if it needs to be and I can show that it works and that would be achieving the OT mandate for this millennium, where we really show what we do and show that it works. So I think this is a really nice holistic information that we've put together, especially in our key takeaway that we will be sharing in our show notes. So please do check out our show notes as this guide will specifically address failure to thrive diagnosis. We will also provide references to various other studies that are applicable. And of course, remember, we do have a glossary of terms applicable for OT and ABA so that we are using that common language and have a common understanding. Uh, Mandy, did you want to add anything else for the key takeaways? I think only that that distinction of sensory versus behavior doesn't make sense because it's all behavior from, from our perspective. But I am excited by your um, openness to measuring what you're doing because I can't imagine, I hope there isn't out there a behavioralist that if a parent came to them and said, I want to trial this intervention that an OT is recommending, that if we could define the intervention and the behavior that we were attempting to increase or reduce, that a behavioralist would not be prepared to trial that intervention and measure its effectiveness. That is who we are. And it's not for us to judge what the intervention is or, you know, and if there is no, uh, you know, empirical evidence to validate it as behavioralists, I, not only do we have the ability, but we actually have the responsibility to take input from clients and measure the outcome. And that's what I think the key takeaway is. And that as behavioralists, we look at things within and, and outside the skin. That's often a misunderstanding of our field so that things as hearing and seeing um, or a heart beating is all behavior from our perspective. And when it comes to a therapist attributing something to a sensory system, you know, it's often a hypothesis that can be tested by measuring the intervention that you propose to address the underlying cause and then measure the outcome. So we kind of finished this on real high, Aditi, that we can work together from two opposing fields and, you know, measure the effectiveness of, of recommendations. 
I think so, Mandy. I think when we first started talking, I was like, oh, good gosh, where's this going to go? Blasted. I'm, I'm not really sure about this. But yeah, I feel I feel good about how we've wrapped it up. And I do think um, the information we're going to provide will be helpful. And we'd love the feedback. If it's not helpful or if it is, please do let us know because we'd love to hear that. Uh, thank you for listening. And lovely Mandy, have a lovely week. And I will catch up with you later. Remember, the most valuable resource we have as therapists is each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspectives. So I implore all of you out there to go and collaborate. So until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And hooroo from Down Under. 